You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. I am fully convinced, my dear brothers and sisters, that you are full of goodness. You know these things so well you can teach each other all about them. Even so, I have been bold enough to write about some of these points, knowing that all you need is this reminder. For by God's grace, I am a special messenger from Christ Jesus to you Gentiles. I bring you the good news so that I might present you as an acceptable offering to God made holy by the Holy Spirit. So I have reason to be enthusiastic about all Christ Jesus has done through me in my service to God. Yet I dare not boast about anything except what Christ has done through me, bringing the Gentiles to God by my message and by the way I worked among them. They were convinced by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit. In this way, I have fully presented the good news of Christ from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. My ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard, rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. I've been following the plan spoken of in the scriptures where it says, those who have never been told about him will see, and those who have never heard of him will understand. In fact, my visit to you has been delayed so long because I have been preaching in these places. Paul's Travel Plans now I have finished my work in these regions, and after all these long years of waiting, I am eager to visit you. I am planning to go to Spain, and when I do, I will stop off in Rome. And after I've enjoyed your fellowship for a little while, you can provide for my journey. But before I come, I must go to Jerusalem to take a gift to the believers there. For you see, the believers in Macedonia and Achaia have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. They were glad to do this because they feel they owe a real debt to them. Since the Gentiles received the spiritual blessings of the good news from the believers in Jerusalem, they feel the least they can do in return is to help them financially. As soon as I have delivered this money and completed this good deed of theirs, I will come to see you on my way to Spain. And I am sure that when I come, Christ will richly bless our time together. Dear brothers and sisters, I urge you, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to join in my struggle by praying to God for me. Do this because of your love for me, given to you by the Holy Spirit. Pray that I will be rescued from those in Judea who refuse to obey God. Pray also that the believers there will be willing to accept the donation I am taking to Jerusalem. Then, by the will of God, I will be able to come to you with a joyful heart, and we will be an encouragement to each other. And now may God, who gives us his peace, be with you all. Amen. We're on week 23 of 24. Next week's the last week we're going to be in the book of Romans, and um, it has been quite the journey. Um, I want to take us back to the first week. And uh, not to start again, I said some of you just freaked out. I don't mean to start again. Uh, I just mean to go back to the first week where we talked about the context of the book and just remind you why Paul wrote this book. To the best that we know, he wrote it uh, for a purpose, and the purpose was to unite a church. Um, it was the Christian church in Rome, 
Um, it was a church that he'd never been to before. He didn't plant that church like he did with uh, Corinth and Ephesus and so on. This is a church that uh, he had only heard about and never met. He, he's going to describe in this passage his, his real deep desire to go and meet with them and, and enjoy their company. But he's writing to them because of the... Uh, a kind of series of um, situations that's threatening the church. Um, the, the best we can understand it from the, the documents that we have is that the church in Rome was begun by Jews who were in Jerusalem for the Acts 2 Pentecost situation. Remember at Pentecost and Acts 2, all these Jews have come from all over the known world, uh, including from Rome. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit descends and all these people become Christians. Just... Christians. And so uh, after Pentecost finishes, they finish the feast, they go back to their hometown. Some of those Jews went back to Rome and there they began a church, the church in Rome. And so you've got these Jews who are working out what it means to be Christian, um, living with one another, teaching one another, sharing with one another. And then all through Roman history, you get these crazy, tyrannical emperors, right? You probably learned about them at school at one point. I think it was Domitian who decided one day he didn't like the Jews anymore. Um, and so he expelled them from Rome, just a massive ethnic cleansing. He didn't kill them, uh, as far as we know, but he said, you can't live here anymore. So just, just imagine saying to uh, everyone of um, Italian descent in Caroline Springs, you must go now. And it was just... There was no arguing, there was no concept of human rights for that matter, it was just, you're out of here. So the Jews had to leave, you have this church then decimated, but there's, a, there's one or two maybe pagan Christians who are Romans by birth, who become Christians who didn't have to leave. So now they're carrying the church, and they carry it for I think around a decade before the emperor changes his mind and the Jews are allowed to come back in. And so then you have this church that was planted by Jewish Christians, taken over by pagan Christians, and now they're all in the same melting pot together. And what we call that in church history is a recipe for disaster, all right? Massively different cultures, different experience of church, different ways of doing things, different language. Uh, And so probably what we have here is all these Jews coming back to the church they founded and finding that, you know, like the, the, the pagan Christians, formerly pagan, like, the, you know, the, the Greeks, Gentiles, they've, I don't know, turned the pews around, and they've introduced Hillsong instead of the hymn book, and so there's, it's all tense. Um, and what happens throughout church history for the last 2,000 years is, and particularly in the last 500 years, and particularly in the last 50 years, is what we get there is two churches. We have a big split we're taking our ball and going home, right? And Paul hates that. Just broadly speaking, God hates that, all right? He hates when people divide over things that they shouldn't divide over. Um, Jesus' prayer that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in, in John 17 is that his people would be united in the same way that he is united to the Father. So we should be united to that degree, that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. That's, we should have that kind of oneness. So, one of the reasons, probably the reason, major reason that Paul's writing this letter is so that that church in Rome will be united. How do you unite a church? Don't, don't sell people on having the best light show or the best coffee. or like Don't sell them. Don't get them to unite on things that are meaningless. Get them to unite on the gospel. And that's why he writes 16 chapters of gospel so that they can say, we all love this, don't we? 
Maybe it doesn't matter if we sing Hillsong or hymns. We're one in Christ. That's a bit, the, bit, the big reason he's writing it. It also seems like, as we see in this passage, he's written ahead to them because he plans on going there. And often when Paul visited churches, he got there and then he was there for years just trying to get them to understand the gospel. He had to toil and toil. What he wanted to do was go and plant other churches. That was his heart. But he had to stay here trying to figure out these people with their issues. And so he's written ahead so that they know it very well. He can get there, say, we're on the same page, right? Yes. All right, I'm going on to Spain. At this point, Spain had been conquered by Rome, but it hadn't been conquered by the gospel. Paul wants to get there and establish the church in Spain. So that's the context for this passage this morning and while we have worked through it over 24 weeks by next week and I did the maths by the way when Phil mentioned the word long division I just died a bit inside okay so when I say maths I mean you know take it with a grain of salt but I think we've been we've preached 15 hours and 45 minutes plus whatever I've taken so far so 15 nearly 16 hours through the book of Romans the people in the church in Rome hear it in half an hour, right? Because they receive the letter, the leader of the church gets up, says, here's Paul's letter to us, and reads it in Greek. I'm guessing it takes half an hour to read it. So they get it all at once. We've spread it out because we're trying to take little bites of this big steak. They just get it all at once. And so I think Paul anticipates that they might feel a little bit, I don't know, a little bit overwhelmed or maybe a little bit patronised, like, yeah, we get this. We're, we've had this church for a long time. We, we understand the gospel. And so this is what he says to them. Pick it up with me in, in verse 14. He kinda, he, he just, I think he just wants to reassure them. He says, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. So he's just he's reassuring them, I know you've got this. In fact, I know, you, you don't just understand this, but you're able to teach others. Remember what Phil said about not just being able to hear a message, but be able to teach others requires a certain level of understanding. He says, yeah, you, I've heard. You guys have got this. So then why, why is he writing to them? Why has he written this huge poem of theology, he goes on to explain in verse 15 to 16. He says, Yet I have written, I've written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What he says is this, I know you, you get this, but you need to be reminded of it always. You might be someone who knows this so well that you're able to teach others, but you need to hear it over and over and over again, which is a real correction of what we've done in the church, at least in my lifetime, which is like the gospel gets you into the church, right? The gospel gets you saved, and then we move on to the more complex stuff. And you might come to our church and think, Every week they're talking about the gospel. We get it. What, what's next? The answer is, there is nothing next. It's all gospel all the time. And all of us need to hear it all the time. 
And the truth is, if you make it your mission every day to remind yourself of the gospel, to learn more of the gospel, you will never plumb the depths of the gospel. It won't happen. No one's ever got there. Remember, Paul was in, in Romans 9 or 10, I forget, where he says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the glory of God, how unsearchable are his ways, how inscrutable his precepts. Right? Like, we, we cannot ever get to the bottom of him or his good news. And so he says, I know you know this, but I've written boldly to remind you of it so that you'll be sanctified, so that you'll be made more like Jesus. That's why he's done it. And that's why we've taken so long to go through it. And that's why next week you'll hear more of it. In a few weeks' time, uh, our next major series will begin. So we'll take a break for a a month and and hit a couple of topics we want to hit. And then um, from the last week in September all the way up to Advent, all all the way up to Christmas, uh, we'll take uh, 12 weeks to go through the Minor Prophets uh, these, are, these are the books of the Bible you've never read before. And the re- one of the reasons you've read them is because they're, they're, they're called the minor prophets. You're like, well, we might as well just go to the major prophets. You know, waste time in the minor prophets. They're called the minor prophets cause, just because they're shorter than the major ones, all right? So we're going to take one book, whole book each week, working through the 12 minor prophets. And so I'm putting together a study guide now that we'll give out to you and your small groups to help aid what uh, Paul, Phil was talking about earlier, um, making it as easy as possible to, to lead these groups. And so I'm, I'm in that space right now. I've stepped out of Romans. I'm in the Minor Prophets. And what I'm seeing over and over again is the gospel. You say, well, this was hundreds of years before Jesus. Yeah, it's still the gospel. The gospel runs as a thread, a golden thread right throughout the scriptures. And so um, every week, irrespective of where we're teaching from, we'll be teaching from the gospel. And so that's exactly why Paul writes so boldly to these Christians to remind them of the good news. And then he says, he goes on and continues to explain where he's coming from to these people he's never met. He says, verse 17, Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I read that this week and I was like, what if, what if Sarah was leading the service and she, that was her... That was a line she dropped at some point during the service. I'd probably take her aside afterwards and say, Sarah, I love what you're doing. You're a great leader. She is, right? When Sarah leads, love it, every word. Maybe maybe just tone down the pride aspect of what you're saying. Like, I glory in my servant, right? It's, It's coming along a little bit strong. It would it would come across that way if you didn't understand. Paul's view of his ministry, all right? So he says things like that. He says things like, I glory in my service. He says things like, I work harder than anyone in my service of the Lord Jesus. He says things like that. And they could come across as a little bit off, a little bit proud, unless you understand where he's coming from. Where he's coming from is this. He knows that every effort he makes is fueled by and dependent on God's Holy Spirit. That without God's power at work, (coughs) he's got nothing. And so here's a couple of examples of that. This This is really good. If you ever want to do any kind of ministry and you want to avoid 
the pitfall that we see of ministers over and over again who fall into pride, that leads them to adultery, embezzlement, right? All of this has the same root in pride. If you want to avoid that, you need to have this mindset that Paul has, all right? So in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. That's the first step. We've talked about this before. What's the biggest issue facing us these days? One of the biggest in our culture is identity. We keep trying to pin our identity to something that's meaningless, like how much money I make, or whether I'm married, or what my sexuality is. Right? You pin your identity to that, and it's like pinning jelly to a wall. It just falls apart. Let's, let's be secure in who God has made us to be. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He knows he's flawed. He knows he's a sinner. He knows he's not omnicompetent. But his identity rests in the fact that God has adopted him as a son. I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of those other ministers and missionaries and apostles. Yet, not I, but the grace of God that was with me. He doesn't say, oh, I didn't do anything. No, he says, I worked harder than anyone. I've got, the, I've got the scars to prove it. But it was God that was working through me. I love this in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28 to 29. He says, Jesus is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. He knows that he is pouring out blood, sweat and tears. He knows that he's working harder than anyone else, but he knows that every calorie that he expends in the surface of the Lord Jesus comes provided by Christ. With all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And so, yes, he says, verse 17, Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service of God. But he goes on, verse 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way round to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. He says things like, I have fully proclaimed. I have done signs and wonders. I have said and done these things. There is activity there, but he knows that all of the activity is fueled by God himself. And if it's not, then it's nothing. So we need to have this kind of frame of mind I don't think, this is speculation, but I don't think there is any pastor, forget that, I don't think there's any Christian who has ended up in bed with someone else's wife who understood this to be true. <clears throat> you can't go and sleep with someone else's wife knowing that every ounce of energy required comes from God. 
and you certainly won't be um, naive enough to be to start buying your own press when your followers grow in number or when people say how great you are. What Paul's describing here is actually profound humility. He knows how gifted he is. He's probably got an inkling that he's going to be one of the most important figures in human history, which he is. But he understands that every bit of it comes from God himself. The image that comes to my mind when talking about this kind of thing is the image of a sailboat, right? Like, you can, you can be the kind of sailboat that is outfitted with every gizmo, just top of the range. But unless the Spirit of God blows, you're not going anywhere. We have many gifted people in our church, but without the wind of God, the Spirit of God, spiritus in Greek means, means wind. Without that wind... Sorry, that's in Latin, spiritus. In Greek, it's pneuma, which is where we get like a pneumatic tire, right? Without that wind, power of God, we go nowhere. Paul's going to start talking in a minute about literally his sailing boat trip across the Mediterranean. And he doesn't get anywhere along that way without, literally without the wind of God and figuratively without the Spirit of God filling his sails. So the rest of this passage now is that topic being uh, explained for us, that topic of his missionary journey, the, the travel plans that he has. And I got to this this week and I was like, now I understand why lots of churches don't preach every verse of the Bible, right? Like, we've got this big thing here, we want to take a book and preach verse by verse and not skip anything, and I understand why people skip stuff, because Paul's travel plans, like, I don't know, then if you wrote a book about it, it probably wouldn't sell out, you know? And um, if we told you we were going to be talking about Paul's travel plans, you'd probably have somewhere else to be. I, I understand that. I had that perspective, and then God really corrected me as I was looking through it. He corrected me First of all, because he reminded me what Paul says to Timothy, remember? He says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for reproof, correction, training in righteousness. So even the bits where he's just talking about where he's going to go next, useful. And then I actually experienced how useful that was because I was working through the rest of this passage that we're going to look at and these four things just jumped out at me. And I, and I really experienced it as God pressing in on me like he does, uh, not in an overbearing way, but in a forceful way and saying, these four things are four things you guys need to take note of. I felt not, not just as me, but as us, that we need to take note of these things and attend to these things and put our time, energy, and resources into these things. And I wasn't brainstorming. I wasn't reaching. I don't even like four-point sermons, right? But these four things just jumped out at me. And so they came from the passage. We're going to read the passage. So let me share them with you, and we'll see where God takes us in the next six months and 60 years, all right? So four things, starting with, number one, missions. Missions came to mind. And when I say missions, I want you to hear it as global and local. 
We like to say glocal, all right? Glocal missions. When you hear the word mission, you might be tempted to think about ministry to people in deepest, darkest Africa. You should hear that, and you should hear ministry to deepest, darkest Deer Park, all right? Both of those things are missions, and sometimes going to deepest, darkest Africa will be easier for you than going next door. I really feel like God wants us to spend a lot of time and money investing in mission. We've got people, some people at the moment coming to us and asking if we will support them in their overseas cross-cultural mission. We want to be a part of that. We had John and Deb here recently now ministering in Dubai. We want to be a part of that. We want to give what we have to that. We want to pray for them in that. But we also want people going next door. We want people sharing the gospel wherever it is not yet known. And that's really what's driving Paul. So listen to this. This is where his heart is at. And I want this to be our heart as well. Verse 20 to 22, he says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. Paul's wanted to go and visit this church in Rome for so long, he hasn't been able to go because there's just too many people who don't know the gospel here. So he's just been going all around the Mediterranean planting churches where there was no church, sharing the gospel where there is no gospel witness. And now he's finally at the point where we've pretty much covered this place now. I can move on to Rome. And this desire to want to see a gospel witness where there isn't one is characteristic of the mission-focused church. I want us to have that in our hearts. We have, like, you can talk about Illyricum or Achaia or these places in Turkey and Syria and Greece and Rome and Spain, places that don't have a gospel witness. Well, we've got them here. We've got Dean's side, right? We've got these new areas of massive growth, residential growth, drawing people from within Australia and from without, and there is no gospel witness that we know of. God has his people there, and God bless them if they're faithfully doing the mission of God there. But why shouldn't we be the church that plants new churches there? This is the outpost, right? When this place was built, there was land set aside for a church by the developer. That does not happen anymore. You're not going to see this place anymore. So maybe God's calling us to be the ones who plant those churches. When I was thinking about this this last week, my mind just went to John and Suzanne, to the Hargraves. They were settled. They were comfortable in Hopper's Crossing in 2005. They had their family home. They had their, their, their settled contentment. And then they heard about that strange new place called Caroline Springs. And they heard about a strange new church that was going to be starting there that didn't have anyone part of it, a founding, you know, planting pastor and his wife. And they heard in that a call from God to be on the mission field. And so they moved from Hopper's Crossing to the barren wasteland that was... 
Caroline Springs. They moved here. They, they left everything to be here. They left their church family. They left their home. They moved here to be part of this, and you are the beneficiaries of that move. That's the heart that I want us to share in. It's actually the heart that this place was built on. And I'd love to see what God might do through us if we adopted that kind of mentality. That's the first thing, missions. The second thing is mercy. Mercy. It seems to be this thing, it's a a modern phenomenon, it's not an ancient one, but this thing where you kind of, it seems like churches have to pick whether they're on mission or into mercy. Like you're either big on evangelism and preaching the gospel and having people saved, or you're really into social justice and serving the poor. And honestly, things seem to divide along those lines. And it's just, it doesn't make any sense of biblical Christianity. The Christians from the beginning were the greatest mercy ministers in the known world, or in the world, full stop. The church of Jesus Christ has done more good for the poor and those in need than anyone else in history. There is no debate. They invented hospitals, charitable organizations, universities. They invented these things. Such was their heart for those who were less fortunate. And I would love us to be a part of that work as well. A heart for missions, a heart for mercy. Paul has this heart for mercy. It's very strong within him. You can read it in in Galatians uh, chapter 2. There's this little episode where Paul and Barnabas, who are like the apostles to the Gentiles, go to Jerusalem to figure some stuff out around theology. And so they meet with the bigwigs in Jerusalem, Peter and James, and John, and they have this discussion, and and here's what happens. He says, Paul writing, God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. That is, they, they affirmed our ministry when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, to the Jews. And crucially, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. This is just as much part of Paul's heartbeat. It's mission, gospel, evangelism, where the gospel is not known, and it's a heart for the poor, for the relief of the poor. And so you see this play out in this passage, right? Paul wants to go to Rome and then on to Spain. Paul is really close by. Travel in those days is not easy. And yet he takes a huge detour around the Mediterranean back to Jerusalem because on his travels he's been collecting money for the poor believers in Jerusalem. And he wants to deliver it by hand. And so he takes this huge detour away from the mission, it seems, and yet not away from the mission, because part of the mission is relieving the poor. This is what he says, all right? Let's read it in the the passage. He says in verse 25 to 27, Now, however, I'm going to come to you, but now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem, 
in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia, that's in uh, Corinth, uh, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So he says, these, all these churches have given, given financially for the sake of the poor. And here's the thing, right? Here's what we know from other passages, one that I'll read in a minute. These finances that have been collected, they have not been collected by the rich and the famous, from the rich and the famous. I, I went to a um, workshop recently where it was a guy from Sydney um, who was talking about this big building project that they'd done, and he shared with us the fact that he had written, he had gone through the church's directory, big church, and anyone who was a doctor, he wrote to them and said, can you support us financially? Because he's like, well, if they're a doctor, they've probably got money. And, then, and I can see the strategy behind it. That's not what's going on here. The money that has been collected has been collected from dirt poor people. And here's, what's, here's where it connects with us. I think that if we haven't been doing a lot of mercy ministry, that that falls back on me as the person responsible for casting vision for our church. Part of what's driving that decision not to be generous in giving to the poor is the sense that like, we are poor, right? Like, we, yeah, we will give to poor people when we have some money. That will do that, definitely. You've seen, you see our finances from time to time, right? You know, th- you know, it's not, we don't have a lot here. And so that drives a certain mentality like, yeah, when we've got it, we'll give it. But we're really corrected by this. This money has not come from rich benefactors. In fact, he mentions the Macedonians. Remember, you've heard this a few times. We've talked about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, this is what Paul says about the Macedonians. Brothers and sisters in Caroline Springs, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. What's going on there? That makes no sense. That's bad financial stewardship. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded, begged us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, to the poor in Jerusalem. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. The Macedonians are our example, I think. They should be. God, give us a heart of generosity like they had. If you hear that and you get a bit excited that we as a church are going to be committing time, talent, treasure to causes of justice and mercy and the relief of the poor, if, that, if that's part of the way God's wired you, and I hope it is, then you might want to join us. We're going to have a meeting after 
this service on September 16th. Um, I don't know what will happen at that meeting, but God willing, you'll be there and there'll be a blank whiteboard and we can just chat about what God might be calling us to do as a church in seeking to be a, a merciful church in this community, all right? So September 16th after this service. Minis- uh, sorry, mission, mercy, prayer. This is the third thing that jumped out at me. I, I think, I know God wants us to be a prayerful church. I don't just mean throw away prayers, like we should pray so we'll find space in a service. I mean that prayer that we would pray or die. We would have that sense that unless we pray, nothing's going to happen. You can have the guy up the front yell at us for an hour every week. You can give us four points of these three, four things that you want us to do, and none of it happens apart from the prayerful application of God's people. That's the, that's the view he had. That's what Paul thinks. He pleads in his letters, please pray. And he pleads because he knows he can be as gifted as he likes and it comes to nothing unless God's prayerful people are interceding on his behalf. Now, I I don't know what this says about me. You can make your own mind up. But for seven years, I've felt this and we've had little goes at it. And then I went away for 10 weeks. And while I was away, everything happened. This team of prayerful people are gathering every week. There's, there's slack groups of prayer requests flying around the clouds every day. There's, 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 a, there's a renewed sense of urgency around prayer. And I love it. I love it. It's like top of my list, thing that I want to happen. I think sometimes we, people like me who are like, they like doing things, we tend to, to go first to ministry and maybe then to prayer if we've got time because it feels like that's active and this is passive. That's not how Paul sees it. Read this with me, verse 30. He says, I urge you, I pl- I'm pleading with you, I beg you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. He says, you want to be part of the struggle? You want to be on the front line? You want to be a missionary like I am? Then pray. Not everyone's going to sail around the Mediterranean, but you can be just as much part of it from your living room. Join me in the struggle. How? By praying It's not active and passive. Prayer is active. It's just as much part of the mission and ministry as the speaking, as the traveling, as as the mercy. Prayer is just as much a part of it. And in fact, without prayer, none of it goes anywhere. Charles Spurgeon used to refer to the prayer meeting as the engine room of the church. Without the engine room, none of the machinery works. If, if you're getting this, if you're a little bit excited about what God might actually do in response to our prayers, then there are people in this church who are passionate about prayer who will help you. 
I think of people like John and Suzanne on the prayer team, leading the charge. Be, go and talk to them. They'll get you involved. We have these multiple avenues for being involved in prayer ministry. Let me just tell you, in the past couple of months, I've had three occasions that will remain with me till the end of my life. I don't say that lightly. right? Sometimes I forget the day my son was born. It's tricky with dates, all right? So these days will not... That was a joke, all right? Jeez. But these days, I'm serious, three times in the last couple of months where I have knelt or sat while people have prayed for me and it has changed history, right? It, it has changed me. Prayer is not this additional thing we bolt on to the ministry. It is the ministry. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Mission, mercy, prayer, and finally, last one, fellowship. I'm just going to read a few, a few little passages from this, this reading, okay? And just hear Paul, how, how Paul experiences the fellowship of other believers. Remember, he's never met these people. This is how he anticipates meeting with them. Verse 23 and 24. Now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing with many, for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through, to have you assist me on my journey there, and after I enjoyed your company for a while. He goes on. Verse 28 to 29. So after I've completed this task of, of giving the money to the poor in Jerusalem, made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. And verse 31 to 33. Pray that I might be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. His view of living in Christian community, fellowship, is so beautiful. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Remember, he doesn't know these people, but he knows what it's going to be like to meet with them because he knows when he meets these strangers, he's going to find not strangers, but friends. He knows he's not going to meet with unknown people, but brothers and sisters. Have you ever met a, somebody and you find out they're a Christian and suddenly they go from stranger to brother and sister? Like there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a spirit sinking going on there. There's a peace. There's a, I don't know, a collegiality. There's a love that wouldn't otherwise be there. That's the power of Christian fellowship. That's the power of Christian community. And Phil spoke eloquently to you about our vision for that. This is the fourth thing we want to focus on, fellowship. And it, and it happens primarily in these small groups. In small groups, things happen that cannot happen in this meeting. I know we don't have a huge congregation, but even in this size congregation, they can't happen. You can't have the kind of close intimacy where you feel like you can share actually what's going on instead of the Sunday morning smile that you paste on in the parking lot before you come in, right? You can't have that here, but you can there. You can have closeness of accountability. 
and transparency. You can have people pray for you, for your needs. You can even, in the best kinds of small groups, you can have material blessings be made available. I've been part of groups where, where car loans were paid off, right? And not, not by rich people, by Macedonians. Like, that kind of thing happens when you develop closeness in Christian community. You can confess sins to one another. You can wrestle with the Word with one another, in, like genuinely, not pretending to know everything, but struggling together to find and figure out what God might be saying to us. All of that happens as we fellowship with one another. And if, if it feels like maybe you're lacking that, or even if it feels like you're lacking the kind of zeal for mission or mercy or prayer that Paul's talking about here, it could be that you don't have the fellowship bit in place. See, even Paul, who's like this one-track mind guy, he's like a single-minded, myopic mission guy who just wants to get to Spain because Spain hasn't been conquered with the gospel yet, even he says, I'm on my way to Spain, but I'm going to stay for a while. In verse 24, he says, I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there. There's the missionary guy. After I have enjoyed your company for a while. He just wants to hang out for a bit. So that's, that's what small groups can do for us. Mission, mercy, prayer, and fellowship. I believe, I believe that this is what God wants us to have at the forefront of our minds. I believe that as we pursue this mission to make all of life all about Jesus, that's where we're led. We're led into these four things. And so to the degree that that's true and I haven't missed something, I want to pray that God would confirm that even now in our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, I stand here as a fallible man, as a... as an incompetent shepherd, but I believe that you have spoken to us here through this passage. I believe that you want us to pursue these things, mission, mercy, prayer, and fellowship. I believe that you really want us to hone in on them. And so if that's true, Lord, would you confirm it in the hearts and minds of your people here now? not by way of manipulation, not by way of a, a crafted presentation, but through the inspiration of your Spirit. Lord, please speak to them. Please encourage them. Please equip them. Please energize them. Please mobilize them for the sake of your kingdom. If there are any here this morning who feel that they lack a sense of purpose, please show them that this is their purpose. If there is any that is searching for a place to fit in and contribute, please reveal to them some aspect of this mission that you've given us, that you want them to be a part of, that without them we cannot do it. How can the eye say to the hand, I have no need of you? Lord, everyone here is desperately needed 
if we're going to do your will and achieve your purposes and work towards your mission. So I just, I, I release the burden to you now, Lord. And I say, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, speak to these people. Speak to me. Awaken us. It's all for your beautiful name.